0: Uh, some of you've asked about how Lynn, my wife, is doing, and she's a few days behind me. Uh, she is safe to be in public and all that, and she's back leading Kids Crossing today, uh, but she got it from me uh, after I was at a conference. I don't know if I got it at the conference or on the flight back, uh, but I'm sure that's where I picked it up, and so she's just trailing uh, a little bit behind me, and both of our energies are not quite uh, where we hope they'll be. We're maybe running 75 percent or so. So Today, in fact, I was supposed to um, Give the uh, mic over to Will Nesbitt, uh, who's a crosswalker and uh, has something to say, because I thought I was going to be at an annual meeting uh, this weekend for our region um, evergreen, part of our American Baptist region, and I canceled that trip because i didn 't want to run myself out, but I was still going to have will teach because I think he 's exceptional, and he would have a lot to say about this subject today, which i 'm going to dabble in, uh, but then he texted me uh, saying that he 's sick so <laughs> so it 's going around i don 't know what he 's got, uh, but uh, prayers are with him for for good healing. Um, Before we get rolling uh, too much further, I want to heads up uh, a little bit on the conference coming up. I encourage you uh, to sign up for it. Even if you don't think you'll make it, it's a good thing to support, uh, just to strengthen it that way. And also, we haven't really publicized this much, but the Friday night and the Saturday night keynote uh, type things, um, we're opening that up for anybody to come uh, for a free will offering so you don't have to pay the 80 bucks for the whole conference if you don't want to go to anything Saturday afternoon. But the the cool thing about Friday night and Saturday night is Friday night you're hearing from Tom Ord uh, who was world-renowned a lecturer on subjects of open and relational theology. I've taught two of his books here. Uh, Third one probably on on love, I'll start sometime in the new year. Um, He's just a great person and a good communicator. And the other one, according to Tom, is a bigger deal than he is. is, Her name is Catherine Keller. And uh, she's a prominent theologian uh, in this field, and she'll be speaking uh, Saturday night. So if you don't want to do any of the workshop stuff on Saturday, uh, you can come to those on Friday night at 7 or Saturday night at 7. And enjoy that, and Friday night uh, there 's also going to be a live podcast after uh, the evening session hosted by a guy named Trip Fuller. Trip Fuller started a podcast called Homebrewed Christianity, which is one of the largest of its kind in the world, and uh, he he brings in amazing speakers all the time he himself is worth uh, listening to and paying attention to. And so uh, he'll be kind of doing an afterburner session on that. So it should be just a great weekend. I hope you can make that. And then I did want to say one thing in addition to uh, what Dar already told you about The Born Again in Berkeley. Um, this show is written and performed by Teresa Donahue. And I found out about this uh, at the conference I was at where I was gifted with COVID and found out that uh, Teresa Donahue is an actor uh, here in the Bay Area and uh, has done a range of work. Um, and She basically is telling her story. Uh, She grew up in Martinez, uh, became a Christian in a sort of megachurch type environment, and then started to experience the tensions that I talked about uh, last week. Uh, How the tensions of politics and religion and where that's taken things. And so it chronicles her experience with that. And so I've previewed the show, uh, watched it. Uh, One of our sister churches uh, featured it. And so I think you'll enjoy it. I think she's a good actor. Uh, It's well-written. It's clever, but personal. Uh, Has some deep, poignant things, um, but it's also clearly autobiographical. And so it's an opportunity to hear somebody tell their story, and that's how I hope you'll hear it. Uh, It's a great way to button up this series uh, that that I'm uh, doing uh, right now called Do I Stay Christian? So before we get into that, uh, would you pray with me, and this prayer is going to be a little bit spoken in, in one little uh, song uh, that my mother taught me uh, many years ago. So would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts BE ACCEPTABLE IN THY SIGHT, O LORD. So today I journey into this do I stay Christian and I'm, asked, I'm actually answering the question, do I stay Christian, <laughs> do I stay Christian said Elmer Fudd <laughs> and the answer for me is yes and I want to talk to you about why uh, today but first let's recap um, where we've been so far. Because the question do I stay Christian is a very serious question uh, for many people. And these are just a beginning list of why people really categorically are leaving Christianity in ways that we have never seen before in our country's history. Uh, We are preceded in an evacuation from faith uh, that we've seen in other countries in Europe. And we always thought it would kind of, we'd be special and different. But what we've seen especially over the last 20 years is shocking to any statistician to see what changes look like. Now, I told you last week in a way too long sermon (laughs) that the peak of Christian activity in the United States was in the 1950s. And it was largely because of a growing response uh, that was politically involved, but it was largely in response to two massive things that were happening. Uh, One massive thing that was happening was Russia. Uh, Russia got nuclear armaments and they were willing to use them. And that was a new thing for us and all of a sudden we were now under threat and we knew it. We were the the big dog and we knew that there was another big dog in the world who could pull that trigger. And so it created this massive uh, energy in the United States to be anti-communist which communism also uh, married itself to atheism. And so when that happened another phenomenon happened here where we recognize, well, we're not communists, we're, we're a democracy, a republic, and we're Christian, doggone it. We are, we are the, God is right there in our founding documents and is clearly evidenced in the founding of our country. So we are a God people. And these two things together coalesce to create incredible energy around the idea of being faithful. And so you had people from the leading marketing companies in the nation, Hollywood the voices of every politician saying if you're a good American you're a person who believes in God. And we know that you're a good person who believes in God if you say so and if you attend church. My dad started his pastoral ministry at the end of this period of time and he'd literally told me that in his first few churches particularly one in suburban Kansas City at that time it was the hot suburb to be in and he would have executives flowing in and out of his church being relocated and they were told in no uncertain terms by their company officials one of the first things you need to do when you move into town is find a church and join it. Can you imagine that dynamic happening today? It's unbelievable. That has never happened uh, when you have these kinds of forces coming in together. Well since then it has dropped off first to the more normative amounts of people because before that massive spike, uh, things were pretty steady in our history, regardless of what we think in terms of our own religiosity. It stayed kind of at a normal level for a long time until it peaked, and then it started to go back down to those normal uh, levels uh, just about two, three decades ago. But in the last two decades, it's plummeted. And people are not only leaving the church, they're leaving Christianity. And they're leaving Christianity because the loudest voice in Christianity has painted the problems that we're seeing up here as Christianity, some of these things anyway. So they wonder about Christianity's death toll. And I recounted that about a month ago, that if we look back through Christians' Uh, Christianity's history as a whole, we have Christian people who are saying in no uncertain terms it is okay to treat other people as inhuman. started first in the Catholic Church, the Pope himself is saying this is okay to do, and then later on Protestants um, did it on their own. Uh, The United Kingdom felt empowered to go and uh, Enslave uh, whoever they could find in the world, they became the world 's superpower in its day because they felt like they had god 's blessing to do so. We did the same thing in our own nation, looking down at other people as literally subhuman not equals, and therefore have the right to push them out and treat them however we want. The death toll the blood on christianity 's hands historically is is shocking uh, and deeply humbling and sobering. There's also Christianity's rigidity toward dissent. (laughs) It's, It's predictable. It is predictable that if you look through history, Christian history and development, from challenging orthodoxy to talking about science, even just raising good questions, the first and strongest response that the collective body of Christianity says whenever a good question is raised is, no, and be quiet, and don't ask those kinds of questions. And if you keep asking those kinds of questions, there's going to be hell to pay. And so literally, uh, you know, over the centuries, people have been beaten, they've been imprisoned, they've been tortured, and they've been killed just for saying things out loud that you and I today now look at and say, well it's obvious they were right. But it seems like the church has always been on the slow side and they're protecting and their protectionism. Uh, Christianity's Bibliolatry, what that means is, and I fully agree with this, that we worship the Bible perhaps more than we worship the God that the Bible talks about. We have made it sacred. We have made it the holy cow. And as such we have made it impossible to challenge. The ideas of taking the Bible literally cover to cover, the idea is that it is inerrant and infallible is nonsense according to the Bible and the rabbis who studied it long before it was given to us. So the idea that we have made this a sacrosanct idea is utterly historically ridiculous and is, has no foundation. It is a new idea that we have crafted to hold this up and in my opinion the only reason we have done so historically is so that we can put ourselves in a supreme position to put other people in their place because we have the holy book that is unparalleled to any other and therefore thump we can beat you into submission with it and if you disagree with me if you disagree with that position of this is the holy book of all holy books then you my friend are going to hell enjoy the trip because we can no longer have to care about you because you have clearly said something which is against holy sacred in iner- infallible scripture now nobody would say this out loud necessarily some have but this is the sentiment and people are leaving in droves because we've robbed them of the scriptures themselves and it's a horrific thing that is happening christians christianity's anti-semitism <laughs> is a sobering reminder of what we are capable of. That even though we can say with our lips that we believe in Jesus, we follow Jesus, we agree with the way of Jesus, which is peace-loving, we know through history, Hitler being the greatest example, and Nazism, the greatest example, and the most horrific example, that even loving people have the capacity to turn and do horrific things to other human beings if the context is right. Uh, Christianity's political adultery and I'm very specific with those terms. It is adulterous. It is adulterous on both sides. All sides. No. We have this tendency because we want to see change happen that we get in bed with power as Christian leaders and we find out that we have stepped out on the one that we're actually wedded to who is the very Spirit of God. And we couch it, and we contextualize it, and we make excuses for it, but at the end of the day, it's still adultery. Christianity has become the useful idiot of different political parties over the years. Let that sit with us. We've not been as powerful as we have thought. We have been played. We have egg on our face, and it's caused people to leave the entire thing. Christianity's selective mistreatment along the lines of race, gender, nationality, sexuality, climate change, refugees, children, marriage, and whoever might be next. And I've mentioned that whole long list, and I just want to be a little bit autobiographical, hopefully not very long on this, because I want to get to why why would I want to stay in this thing at all. Uh, But I can tell you as I was writing this up uh, yesterday, I can tell you that for my entire adult life, and even a little bit before, but definitely 18 on, from college on. I was born and raised in a Christian home. My dad's a pastor. We were in a mainline traditional uh, home. So not super conservative, uh, but still Baptist, so kind of goes without saying, kind of conservative. But in that uh, setting, because I was raised in a more moderate household in theology, um, I didn't have super conservative uh, leanings on things. So like the whole thing about abortion, Did you know that in the late 60s, um, when abortion became a legal safe option for women, that the majority of church leaders, even of what we would call conservative denominations, were okay with it? That they signed off on it, they thought it was a good thing? Did you know that? It's crazy. And then it changed because of that political adultery thing I'm talking about. It became this horrific thing that it had the argument that it became today. So not even about Roe v. Wade, not even about uh, choice and all that, which I'm I'm for choice, Uh, but when it just came to women I remember in college having conversations with women or actually guys about women, not those kind of conversations, but other conversations about (laughs) with conversations about guys uh, in the Christian world about women and their authority or not because even though I became a Christian leader on campus I didn't go to the church that most of the other Christian folks went to on campus, which was a small conservative church. And they kind of brought me in, I don't, I don't even know why, I don't even know how I became a leader on the Christian stuff on campus because I didn't fit. But that also drove them crazy because I would push back on their versions of the Bible, on whether or not women should be allowed to have any kind of leadership on creation. I could, All of these things I've had to deal with my entire adult life as a Christian defending all these things which don't need to be defended. And so I can understand if you didn't have my upbringing you didn't have a call of God on your life to be a pastor, which I had the summer before my sophomore year in high school, if you didn't have all these motivators saying, you need to stay in the game, I completely understand why somebody would just want to walk away. And of course, I've had skin in the game. All of these things, these are not clean. These are not easy. I can have many stories here in this church about what version of the Bible are we okay with about well how do we treat people who aren't Christian yet and I've had key leaders in this church's history tell me I don't really give a I don't care if they go to hell in a handbasket those words were said about people who didn't know anything about Jesus that's the kind of white knuckle stuff that's been my experience I remember losing another guy uh, because we were because I was uh... fully supportive of gender equality in the church and he got so mad at me and eventually left these are not pleasant little conversations in a text to say hey Jesus loves you have a nice day these are intense battles I'm not exaggerating here and of course as uh, you probably know I know about four years ago well many years ago 2006 uh, after I was done with my doctoral work, um, I used my, my new fancy tools uh, to, to look at two major topics which I knew were tearing Christianity and the country apart, especially Christianity. I wanted to know about what is the Bible really saying about homosexuality, and I wanted to know what is the Bible really saying about the, the concept of hell and found out that in both cases what was being peddled out on the pulpits and in the airwaves is not really reflective to even what conservative scholars were saying about both of those things. So I started murmuring about that back in 2006 and talked about it the first time publicly in 2009 and then again in 2014 and 2014 uh, talking about marriage equality and saying that I do not see any theological reason why God would not bless the same gender covenant uh, given how I understand uh, the fullness of the Bible and fullness of Scripture and what covenant was about and all these different things. I understand, um, you know, that caused, some, got caused a little kerfuffle. And it caused some problems within our denominational region that we were a part of at that time. But they chose to keep me in leadership. At that time, I'd probably been uh, five years or more um, in a pretty significant leadership role within Growing Healthy Churches. Uh, leading all of the clusters of pastors uh, throughout Northern California. So I was telling people what books are we going to read, look making sure that our pastors collectively were looking after. And it was a wonderful opportunity and a wonderful role. But when I let our executive minister know that I was going to marry a couple um, who was same gender, um, that was a deal breaker. And I was immediately fired, not only fired, but told Uh, If you don't take your church out of uh, our region, I'll make sure that we vote you out as we have done uh, with many churches in the past. Well, that's not easy stuff. And uh, that came with a price that was deeply painful to have 20 years of ministry wiped out, to be excommunicated like that. That's not fun. Uh, To take the church out and move through that uh, even though it became a pride point for us in many ways, it was still very difficult. And I just want to be really clear. Wah, 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 Pastor Pete, I feel so sorry for you, you, you white male who's had to deal with so much trauma in your life. I understand that I'm hardly the victim here. That how, but my point is this, that I, I have skin in the game. This, I have reason myself to not want to be a part of Christianity because of what Christianity has done to me but here I am in my position. How much more for some of you? Women who've been told you don't have the right to be in certain roles within Christendom. Uh, Some of you who are LGBTQ told you yourself, your person is ungodly. I mean, we could go on and on and on. All of this is just to say Man, as, as McLaren said at the end of every chapter, the first ten chapters of, of his book, in fact, where he says every time, there's a really good reason to, to reconsider the whole thing. I don't blame you if you go. I understand that. I understand that. But I choose to stay. And the reason I choose to stay um, is partly related to everything that McLaren says in the second third of his book, which starts up in the next slide. Most of these are pretty self-explanatory, and so we can just buzz right through them. Why stay Christian? Because leaving hurts allies and helps their opponents. I could leave Christianity, but then what is that going to do to all the different things that I'm a part of, that we're a part of, uh, that would then be robbed of that voice? That was a huge, huge conversation piece when the region was telling us to leave because we thought we had influence in the region not to change their view on marriage but to just to provide an alternative viewpoint to soften the hateful voices that we were hearing and the rigidity just to be able to be an influence in that but we decided it was a lost cause at that point so we're part of another region which is not all on the same page collectively but has respect for other viewpoints within their thing. Um, you know, why stay Christian? Because leaving defiantly or staying compliantly are not my only options. This is not need to be a binary thing. There's a middle way here. There's a middle way to provide a different uh, viewpoint for those who are looking for it. Which gets to the third thing. Um, why stay Christian? Because well, where else would I go? I've said this repeatedly, especially in recent weeks. I'm a Jesus guy. That's, that's who I resonate with. Um, I respect other world religions and all that, but, but Jesus is home for me, and he's the one that's captivated me. So why would I, why would I want to leave that? Where, where else am I going to go? I, how much language would I need to learn differently if I chose to go Buddhism or something else? I mean, this is home for me. And so it doesn't make sense to leave home. Why say Christian? Because it would be a shame to leave a religion in its infancy. We don't really think about it this way, but religion, the Christianity is really pretty young. It's only 2,000 years old, (laughs) which is about half as old as Judaism, uh, which is uh, not as old as Buddhism, uh, and some other traditions that extend even longer than ours. You know, in all of its fairness, and I'll get more to this on the next screen, but Religion has, and Christianity, of course, has ebbed and flowed because it is a human creation. Uh, It is a, we have human beings in Christianity who are in flux, who are shifting through history and dealing with all of the challenges they go. So, of course, we can expect it to be one hot mess (laughs) over time. Uh, That's just the way every organization is. doesn't excuse it, but it just helps us understand that, of course, it's evolving. And of course, I just mentioned because of our legendary founder, and more on that is Jesus, you know, did he, did he have any challenges in his life? Or Did he get any pushback in his ministry? Did anybody take issue with anything that he had to say? Of course, of course, he was in a very similar situation that we find ourselves in today. Uh, He would give a new idea, a new understanding about interpreting scripture in a different kind of way. And as soon as the words got out of his mouth, there'd be immediate pushback from religious leaders all around him. He would break uh, some very important significant Sabbath laws. And when that would happen, uh, he experienced quite a storm of rebuke uh, from those who knew it and called him out on it. And Jesus handled it every step of the way. But he didn't win. He didn't win. It beat him. He lost the game. And he knew it was coming. He knew the night that he had the Last Supper with the disciples, he knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew what was happening while he was weeping and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, praying that this cup would be removed from him because he knew he was about to go through hell. And he did. And he was killed. And we know that that's not the end of the story. But in terms of his effort to change Judaism and to change Jewish people's thinking about how to live within an empire and influence change within it, he lost that battle. He lost. Doesn't take anything away from Easter and resurrection and our hope for life after death and all of that that served to validate much of his teaching. But the reality is we should expect. We should expect the battle. And we should expect to lose some because that's the way it was for Jesus. On the next slide we get a few more reasons why to stay. Uh, because, oh this is, hmm, this is really good. Uh, boy, I don't know if I can do it justice, but because innocence is an addiction and, solita- and solidarity is the cure. I'm really guilty of this one, by the way. Uh, this is such an easy one to fall into. Uh, Nadia Boltz Weber has written more about this. Uh, that's what uh, Brian McLaren referenced and see if I can frame it this way. Because what I find myself doing when I talk to people who are looking for a different interpretation of Christianity or a different, or an alternative orthodoxy if you will. Uh, when I start talking about all those reasons why people want to leave Christianity, one of the things that I quickly say is, well yeah, but, but that's not really representative of true Christianity. Or they're, they're not, they've kind of stepped away from Jesus on this. And so I distance myself from those Christians over there who are getting it wrong is what is essentially what I'm saying. But when we choose to do that, it's a little bit dishonest and it's definitely not helpful because what it does is it gives us the opportunity to excuse ourselves because we haven't been a part of it. We haven't reflected those things which are so awful we probably represent other things that are not so wonderful to other people. But when we choose to be innocent from the people that we believe are not practicing the faith faithfully, we sort of excuse ourselves from any responsibility in it. And when we choose to do that, it's like we're washing our hands of something that we should have been doing something about all the time. I imagine it's like uh, when you're in a a household where there's substance abuse or domestic violence, and there's a person uh, in the circle, and everybody knows there's abuse. They know it's a substance or physical abuse or sexual abuse or what have you, and there's somebody in the household who sees the problem and understands that that's going on, and they just sort of blame it all away on, well, that's that person. I really can't do anything about it. That's that person. But maybe that one person is a person that could influence things toward well-being, toward safety, toward health. And when we sit in silence and do nothing, when we just walk away from it, it, it is an addictive innocence which is inappropriate. I'm not saying it quite well. I don't know if you get me on this. Um, It's kind of like what I was saying when we were talking about anti-semitism and then extrapolated that uh, to what we've seen in different uh, settings in our own country politically uh, where Christians have sat silent even holding placards that have scripture verses as people in the same company that we are in are doing terrible things to other people or property. And when we claim to be Christian, when we wear a cross around our neck and do nothing, when we see horrors happening, big and small, that's inappropriate. And we excuse ourselves as being innocent because they're the ones who are being naughty, not me. You see the problem with that? And the only way to fix it, according to McLaren and Naughty Boltz Weber, the only antidote to it is not to run away because that just feeds the addiction <laughs> of wanting to be innocent. The only way to really deal with it is to be in it. To be a part of it. I was um, the last week's uh, Center for Action and Contemplation um, which I read every day in my inbox. Uh, they went over the eight core tenets or principles of their organization. and Their last one Uh, had to do with um, remaining humble and open. And so they tell their CAC staff to go be in different faith communities from time to time and hang out there a little while to understand different perspectives. Because when you understand different perspectives and you're in with them, they don't become the enemy out there. They don't become the other. They become one of you. They become human beings. And I think what's happened in Christianity is we have mirrored, parroted the political environment, which has gotten increasingly binary and in and out, is Christianity has done the same thing. And we've distanced ourselves from our brothers and sisters in the family. And in so doing, we have kept ourselves from being able to understand the very human reality of the other voices. And McLaren talks about these things uh, a little bit more in, in his chapter on this, and I recommend uh, reading it because he'll do more justice than I am. And it's really related to that next uh, little bullet point, why I stay Christian, because I'm human, because I recognize that as much as I want to point fingers and point out how, how somebody's got it wrong, I've got it wrong. I'm on a journey. I'm, I don't see the world the same way I saw it when I was an early young adult. I don't preach the same as I did when I was in my first church. I don't preach the same stuff because I've evolved, I've changed, I've switched since I've come here. And I hope that ten years from now, if I'm still around here (laughs) or anywhere, (laughs) I hope that I'm not saying the same things that I am today. I hope to be more mature. I hope to have learned more, to see the world differently and better and more holy. And I hope that's the case for all of us, but because we're all human that compels us to stay in the game, not to leave it. Because every other Christian that's ever walked the planet is also human. And that gets to the next thing, because Christianity is changing and it's changing for the worse and for the better. Because we are in context and we're in the United States context which the political machine uh, is increasingly binary and increasingly Uh, driven by fear and don't you just love the commercials that we have every election cycle? I love this generalized one that's all about fear, fear, fear. And watch out for every possible worst case scenario that is possible and let that change your vote or or whatever. Uh, When I was in Kansas in the summer this was kind of funny because, as you probably caught in the news, uh, they had a, a referendum uh, in their state um, ballot, special election, uh, dealing with choice and abortion rights and this kind of a thing. And so, the the primary commercial that Lynn and I would hear as "We're we're watching uh, TV with her folks. Is you don't want to be like California, do you?" <laughs> it was hilarious. I was like, "Well, it's not all that bad, really," you know. So anyway. Uh, that's part of a flavor of where we are as a culture. And Christianity has followed suit. And it's damaging, the whole, it's damaging our country where we don't listen to each other. We don't hear each other. Uh, we, we push each other to the sides. And it's hurting us. And we need to take a note on that and realize the same is true in Christianity. Um, oh, well, This might sound ridiculous because why would God need to be freed? Well, the reason God would need to be freed is because God doesn't have hands and feet and God does not have a mouth. It's Christianity, it's Christians who are the mouth of God, who are the hands and feet of God. And we are potentially guilty right now of the same missteps that Christianity has been guilty of every century of being late to the party on the wrong side of history and can we free God as Jesus did in his day uh, to the more expansive loving view which is represented in Jesus' understanding of God as primarily Abba, a loving father, daddy that motivates our thinking all the way through. I'm so appreciative of uh, Stephen's meditation which touched on that today because it really is the transformative thing. If your primary view of God is judge, warlord, your life is going to reflect that. Indeed, in most of Christianity, that is the dominant image that has prevailed. And how has it been reflected in Christianity? As war-mongering, violent people. We don't need any more of that transformation that's not even good news. If Jesus would have peddled that, nobody really would have paid that much of attention because it wasn't any different than they were already thinking and hoping. It's because Jesus leaned into Abba. That's what got people's attention. Because that's what allowed him to go into leper colonies. That's what allowed him to go in the company of a guy who is blind from birth and bring healing. That's what allowed him to be in the company of tax collectors and prostitutes. That's what allowed a bunch of stinky fishermen to become the champions of this new thing because it was the love of God that saved them, that healed them. That's still the only thing that will do it today. And finally, because of Fermi's paradox and the great filter. You know, you were thinking that this morning. But, oh yeah, <laughs> Fermi's paradox is the great filter. Well Fermi, um, he is responsible for a lot of nuclear development uh, in the United States and, of course, globally. Then um, there was even a, a Fermi um, semiconductor, I think, uh, in Lansing, Michigan, part of Michigan State University. My brother uh, worked at a laboratory there. He's a mechanical engineer. Um, basically, Fermi was saying this in all of his brilliance he was like, Okay, the, all of creation all of the galaxy, the known cosmosphere, it's billions of years old. We can't be the first life sustaining planet and all of these stars and planets that compose, you know, everything that we can possibly imagine. Certainly, (laughs) there had to have been some before us who made it and certainly there had to be some before us and over billions of years certainly some of those were smart enough to figure out how to travel through space do an interplanetary kind of thing. So how come we haven't seen it? Now some of you, you've been watching too much late-night TV and you're like, Pete, I got this podcast you gotta listen to. They're among us right now. I think you're one of them, right? <laughs> so, maybe? So, so we have this thing, and Fermi's saying, if we've really been around this long, certainly been, there's been other intelligent life forms that have probably been way more intelligent than us, and so Why haven't we seen more evidence of that? And Fermi sort of brought it to the conclusion which gets us to the great filter. The idea is this, is that every intellectual creature who's able to get to our level discovers how to self-destruct and does. And that is the great filter. So right now we have figured out just in the last hundred years how we can wipe ourselves out entirely and quickly. And this is a question that has seriously been before us since World War II, was a serious threat against us in the 1950s and beyond, and is still being talked about today. Still being threatened, seriously. If they had the capacity North Korea, certainly do have the capacity in Russia, China, other countries as well, and of course we, we have the strongest military in the world and therefore we are the biggest target. Why stay Christian? Because of Fermi's paradox in the great filter. If the primary image of God that people are talking about in the world is the one who wants to end it all anyway and judge the world and take all the good folk to heaven and forget about all this thing called planet earth, well that's just going to speed up the process and indeed there are Christians who say that very thing. Don't care about the planet, It's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. Do we really care that much about our grandchildren? (laughs) Let's let the water tank. Let's just let things keep on getting crazy because God's going to bring it all down anyway. That's that's real thought, and that has God as angry judge at, at the primary image of who God is. But if we're Jesus people, that's not the primary image. The primary image of God for Jesus is Abba, Daddy, who says, no, 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 no. It's all about love a deep, profound, strong, challenging love that does hold people to account who says what you're doing is against the history of nature. It actually is, is hurting people and you're hurting yourself in the process and you're going to wipe us all out if you don't pay attention. If we who understand the message of Jesus clearly aren't the ones who are saying this into the culture, who is? <laughs> We're accelerating our path to the great filter. <clears throat> Brian McLaren had some things to say about this, and I want to read his voice on this, if you'll allow me. So this will take just a minute, probably three minutes, if you'll let me do it. says, so, so, and this is at the end of the, the chapter on uh, the Fermi Paradox and the Great Filter. It says, with our human predicament in mind, when I survey the biblical library and all the other resources of the Christian tradition, a realization hits me like a bucket of ice water. I would be a fool to walk away from this incredibly rich treasury of wisdom at this time, when I as an individual, and we as a species, need it so much. No, I don't need an evacuation plan gospel that tells me this world is hopelessly sinking, so I should give up on it and jump into the lifeboat bound for heaven. Instead, I need a transformation plan gospel, the kind that inspired our ancestors stuck in their own existential threats to seek a way when no way was visible. No, I don't need the Bible as an inerrant revelation of simplistic answers so I can live in blissful denial about life's complexity and and perplexity. Instead I need it as a library of questions and arguments among communities of people who sought a better way of living in harmony with themselves, one another, the earth, and God. No, I don't need a comforting spirituality as a tranquilizer to calm my imagination and soothe me into compliant complacency. I need a spirituality that is rich soil in which I can plant new seeds of contemplation from which wise, creative action will arise. No, I don't need the church as a warehouse that seeks to contain me and entertain me until I can be shipped to my final destination. Instead, I need a community of spiritual activists who share a vision of a bold exodus from systems of oppression, a wilderness journey toward a better day when we will turn swords and guns into garden tools and musical instruments. No, I I don't need prayers that reassure me that the future is predetermined, God is in control, and God will fix everything if I keep my head down and stay out of trouble. Instead, I need prayers that transform me and my companions into spiritual revolutionaries who create good trouble, as John Lewis said, building a new world, one brick and garden at a time, in the ruins of this old world that is rapidly falling apart around us. No, I don't need sermons that interpret the Bible as the biblical literalists do, ignoring its literary depth. Nor do I need lectures that reduce the Bible as cosmological literalists do, flattening it to exclude any spiritual depth. Instead, I need sermons that fulfill Catholic scholar John Hott's sage prescription, providing us not only with big history, but also with thick history. History that not only sees the outside of the universe, but also the inside with its rich subjective reality, depth of thought, emotion, value, and relationships, what Tellier Chardin called the noosphere. No, I don't need a Jesus whose job is to police the gates of heaven, keeping out all who don't hold the correct beliefs. But I do need the Jesus whose life and message bring unique treasures to earth. Treasures that I can share with people of every, li- every religion and no religion. Just as I remain open to the unique treasures they offer me. No, I don't need a constricted Christian worldview that teaches me to see the world as a machine. And God is the almighty engineer who created it and now tinkers with it the striving I experience in the universe around me, the sense that the whole universe itself is filled with a spirit, or spirit, capital S, that is brooding, gestating, laboring, becoming, yearning, learning, reaching like plants growing toward light, like salmon leaping up, up rapids toward a life-giving telos, or like lifeless planets undergoing metamorphosis from hot volcanic hills to Edens full of emerald rainforests and shimmering coral reefs. When the depths of the Christian tradition help me see the world in this way, I see politics striving for something above the state's ability to govern. I see economics striving for something above return on shareholder investment. I see science striving for something more than information. I even see religion striving for something more than full sanctuaries and overflowing offering plates. Yes, I could leave Christianity. But would I also leave my spiritual striving? What would be left? Rational analysis that convinces me that life is doomed and meaningless, that will never make it through the great filter? Desperate action that can too easily become the monster it is trying to fight? Yes, I could reject conventional Christian answers. But would I also reject the questions that have motivated the great Christian saints and sages? Questions that kept, keep me striving to grow as a human being? might I be a truer Christian for striving with the questions that I, would be, that I would be for accepting the answers? As I write these words, Pope Francis has convened a global gathering called the Economy of Francesco. The gathering was supposed to bring a few thousand people to Assisi, Italy, honoring the vision of St. Francis, but due to COVID, the gathering has moved online which has made it accessible to all of us. And what McLaren talks about is in that manifesto, two different documents. Turns out the Pope is on the same page of wanting to have a better theology that tries to actually transform the world, mature the world, make it what it can be based on an understanding of the love of God. There's a passage in Scripture which I want to briefly talk about just to bring this thing home for you and for me today. It starts on the next slide. This comes from the end of John. This is after... After Jesus died, it's after he's raised again. He told the disciples he'd meet him up in Galilee during their old stomping grounds. And so uh, the boys were out fishing, waiting for Jesus to show up. They couldn't catch anything. A little backstory: There's some schmo on the, on the shores uh, that says, hey, did you catch anything? And they're like, no, I didn't catch anything. And so the voice from the shore says, well, try it one more time. So they lower their nets, they get this massive catch of fish and they figure out that the guide, the schmo, (laughs) is actually Jesus. And so they rush to the shore and found out that Jesus had already caught some fish and had already started a campfire and already cooked them breakfast. And so it's after this experience that we run into this. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, master, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And he asked a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Uh, yes, Master, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Then he said it a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was upset that he asked for the third time, do, do you love me? So he answered, Master, you know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. And just a heads up, for those of you who didn't catch the movie, uh, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times the night that he was arrested. It wasn't until the third time uh, that he's asked, do you love me, did he connect the dots, Uh, that this is a moment of restoration for Peter. Just as he denied Jesus three times now, he's affirming his commitment three times over. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I'm telling you the very truth now, When you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wished. But when you got old, you'll have to read... When you get old, you'll have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. He said this to hint at the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And that's exactly what happened. And then he commanded, follow me. Turning his head, Peter, who often puts his foot in his mouth out of his humanity, Notice the disciple Jesus loved following right behind. When Peter noticed him, after Peter heard this bad news, he asked Jesus, Oh, Master, what's going to happen to him? <laughs> as if to say, I hope he gets it as bad as I do because I don't want this bad news. And Jesus said, If I want him to live until I come again, what's that to you? Follow me. I want to tell you that leaving is an understandable option. Yet, the invitation to follow remains because of the reasons to leave. I stopped wearing a cross for about three years because I so didn't want to be painted with the same brush that I'd heard from other factions of Christianity. I've been wearing it now since I read McLaren's book. Wearing it again because I can't leave it. It's too important. It's too big. The mission matters too much. The God who loves us and proclaims love to the whole world is still proclaiming the same thing. And if I choose to walk away from that, I am choosing to take one more voice out of the equation saying this love of God is real. The Jesus way works. Nonviolent resistance works. It's not as fast as just pulling the trigger or amassing troops, but it actually works better for the long haul. If we'll ever try it. You can't give up on it. The love of God is too powerful in my life and I'm wondering where you are now. If we're having breakfast with Jesus on the shore, recounting all of our own humanity, all the ways that we have in great and small ways, denied knowing Christ. You've done it. I know you have. I even know some of the ways some of you have done it. (laughs) So don't try to get away with anything. We're all in this boat together. We are all Peter. We are all mixed human sacks of sometimes getting it and trying our best toward our aspirational goals and sometimes falling on our face, hurting ourselves and other people. And yet, Jesus beckons us and says, yeah, I know, but I still love you. You love me. You have to try this thing a little bit more. And are you so convinced of the love of God, not in any kind of a threatening way, but are you so convinced of the love of God as really the only thing we really have at the end of the day? Because it's the only thing we really have at the end of the day. You don't have anything else. When these give out, what do you have? All the stuff that you've acquired, gone. The titles you've accumulated and hung on your wall, gone. The only thing you are left with is whatever that soul is that you have and the love of God. There is nothing else. So what else are we going to be about? So Jesus asks us, you and me, fellow Peters, having breakfast with Jesus, even if it all goes south, (laughs) even if it doesn't go so well, even if you've got to put up with some hatred because maybe that's the only thing the person knows. But you know a different way. You know the love of God for yourself and for the hater. Are you willing to choose the side of love anyway? Are you willing to choose the side of love anyway? Peter said yes. This Peter says yes too. And I'm wondering where you are on that as well. Before we uh, do a responsive Lord's Prayer, let's just spend a moment uh, with our eyes closed and silent. And I'm just asking you to identify what is happening in you. What have you heard today? And you know what? If, it's okay if, if I didn't sell it well today and you just want to walk. That's all right. I don't, no guilt, shame. I, I get it. I, I get it. And I think God gets it. It might not be your final answer, you know, over the course of your life. But if, if today your answer is, I just can't do it anymore, then God bless you. And know that God loves you anyway. Always has, always will. And it's God's love that is going to sustain you. But maybe today, maybe some other things have clicked, come into focus. Maybe maybe like me, you, you know all the reasons, you felt the pain of all the reasons why you could leave. But you can't get away. You can't get away from the invitation of love to love. So what are you about? Who are you about? Who are you? Who are you you following? We are all Peter, God, in this room. Peter blew it a couple more times after this exchange, God. We can read it in print. He was still slow to get it. He was a mixed bag of being in the way, being slow to to see things. And yet at the same time, he was also a champion of the changes that changed the world. That's who we are, God, and we sit here before You, knowing we don't deserve anything from You. And we need to say that not because we're worms and hated by You in any way. You love us. That's clear from the very first chapter of the Bible. You look at us and you just celebrate human beings. But we need to say we don't deserve it because we feel like we earn everything in our life. And in our culture we believe in transaction. And we need to say to you, we know we know we don't deserve your love. We can't earn it. We just are. May your love of us, God, heal us of transactional thinking Heal us of the limiting views we've placed on you that has has limited your voice in us and in anybody we speak to about you. Strengthen us for what lies ahead. Be it good or bad, may we ground ourselves and found ourselves on your never-changing, reckless love because that's all there is. If, uh, If you're able and comfortable, on the next slide I invite you to help me finish with this Lord's Prayer. I'll do the part that Jesus taught his disciples and you guys can do the interpretation of it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Strengthen us for the work we're called to embrace. Amen. May it be so. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for missing the first half of the Niners game today. Pray for the Chiefs today. Have a great week, and we'll see you here next week.